I keep saying, to get in sync with the rhythm of Jesus. As we see Jesus practice certain spiritual disciplines in his life, we also want to imitate that. So we've challenged you with quiet time, silence, solitude, prayer. Most recently in this month, we've challenged you with scripture memorization. There's no doubt that Jesus and his disciples would have had most of the Hebrew scriptures memorized. So we challenged you to memorize Mark chapter 4, verse 1 through 20, which is the first section in Mark that has a lot of red letters, a lot of Jesus' teaching. And this is the parable of the sower and then his explanation of this parable. So we thought maybe this would be a good place, challenge you to memorize 20 verses, right? Not just to show off who has a good memory, but to memorize so that we can really slow down and meditate on the teachings of Jesus. And what I didn't realize when we offered this challenge was how hard that particular set of teachings was to memorize. So if you tried it, you know what I'm saying. Uh, It first tells the parable and then explains it, and his explanation is worded a little bit differently than the parable itself. And so it was a difficult passage to memorize. We have some members of our church who practice scripture memorization on a normal basis, and somebody told me, this has been the hardest passage to memorize. But what we've done, what Kristen Spencer did, was she made a video and asked people to send her videos of quoting Mark 4, 1 through 20, and she compiled together a little video for us, and we'll get a chance to see different members of our congregation who took this challenge on. So I want to invite you to follow along in Mark 4, 1 through 20. We're going to watch this short video, and you'll see that different people chose different English translations, and so you can kind of follow along, and let's take a look at this video.
All right, so that was our scripture memorization challenge. Thank you to everyone who, who gave that a shot. You know, again, it's not about who has a great memory. It's about really dwelling richly in the Word of God and, and taking time to slow down and do that. And, and as you see from the bloopers, uh, it wasn't the easiest passage to memorize. It took me like five different takes to get through all 20 verses. But thank you for those who attempted that. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to move on from chapter 4 and we're going to move in to chapter 5. And in Mark chapter 5, there's three of, I think, some of the greatest stories in the entire Bible. As human beings, we love stories. I don't think there's anybody in the audience today that would say, no, I don't like to hear a good story. We like watching movies, and we like watching TV shows or reading books that tell a good story. You know, Thanksgiving's coming up, the holidays. And I can almost guarantee you that with your families, you're going to sit around and you're going to share stories of things that happened in the past. If you go on a church trip and you're around church people long enough who have been members here long enough, inevitably they're going to tell you some story of something that happened from the past. We like telling stories. When I preach, I can invite you to turn somewhere in your Bible and I can give you the literary context and the historical context and maybe share some Greek words with you. And some of you have ears to hear, but then I start telling a story and it's kind of amazing how many more people seem to start paying attention. We like stories. The Bible it's full of stories throughout the Old and the New Testament. Jesus loved to tell stories. So you see in Mark chapter 4, he told these parables. A guy named Donald Miller several years ago wrote a book called Blue Like Jazz. Uh, this book was really memoirs of his life. He grew up in the South, was raised uh, as a Christian, but moved to the Northwest. And so it's kind of his stories of living as a Christian in the Northwest. Very interesting stories. A few years after it was published, some filmmakers came to him, gave him a call, and said, we want to make a movie based on your stories from this book. So how exciting is that? They want to make a movie about your life. So he agreed to it, and when the time came to write the script for the movie, he was really disappointed because he realized that they had to really spruce it up a lot. They had to add a lot of details in there to make the story sound better and he was really disappointed because he said my life isn't interesting enough to make a movie about it they have to add things to it so what came as a result from that was another book and this book was called a million miles in a thousand years and this book was his attempt at telling a better story with his life he was literally trying to edit his life while he lived it so trying to tell a better story with his life he wound up starting a mentor project for young boys who grew up without a dad. He rode his bike across America to raise money for water wells in Africa. He did a lot of neat things for the kingdom of God because he was trying to tell a better story with his life. And in this book, he defines story as this. A character who wants something and has to overcome conflict to get it. A good story is a character who wants something and has to overcome conflict to get it. Without this definition, without these elements, you don't have a good story. So any movie or TV show or good book that you've read, think about it. There is always a character who has a passion and a desire for something. But in order to get that something, there has to be some conflict that they overcome, some trials. And what I'm learning in life and ministry and 
interacting with you and with other churches and other members of other, of other churches is that everyone has a story. The more I get to know you, the more I realize some of you have gone through some very painful circumstances in your life. Some of you have faced tragedy and overcome it. Some of you have battled through addiction or some dark seasons of life where you're caught in a sin for a long period of time. You've overcome these things. Some of you have been hurt by other people. And you have powerful stories of forgiveness and reconciliation. We all have a story, right? Everybody has a story. And in Mark chapter 5, we have these three powerful stories. And I think we're going to kind of find ourselves in these stories that Mark tells. So let's start in verse 1 of Mark chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. So he says they Mark says they came to the other side. That's, that's important as you read through Mark, Mark chapters 4 through 8. We see Jesus going to the other side, coming back to the other side. So he's leaving Jewish territory, and the point is he's going to Gentile territory, and then goes back to the other side, and then back and forth. So pay attention when he writes the other side. In verse 2, and when he stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, as he was uh, always howling and bruising himself with stones, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed before him, and he shouted from the top of his voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? So Jesus goes across the sea. He lands, and for some reason, Jesus goes into the graveyard, into the tombs, and there's this man who is possessed by a most powerful adversary, possessed by this demon that he's going to identify as legion in this text. And this demon has given him superhuman strength. He can break chains. Nobody can... Hold him now. Nobody's strong enough. He's kind of been banished out into the tombs. He's running around naked. He's in the mountains and in the tombs howling or crying out, which I'm sure was a very disturbing sound. And it says he's bruising himself. He's cutting himself with stones. So that's his story at that point in his life. And just to pause for a moment, I'm sure we have a few people that that may feel like your story right now. You know, maybe you feel isolated, alone, maybe you're in a dark place, and you don't want to be there, but you're there, and maybe some of you are even hurting yourself. So I just feel like I should say, if that's where you're at right now, if you can identify with this guy, you can get help. There are shepherds and people here that love you and want to help you, so you don't have to leave today and let that be the end of your story. So this guy is out in the tombs, and this is how he's living his life, and he sees Jesus, and he falls at the feet of Jesus. Jesus is the divine warrior, and somehow he knows who Jesus is. You know, James 2, 19 says, even the demons believe, and they shudder. So he comes at the feet of Jesus, and they're going to ask for permission not to go out into the country, or Luke chapter 8 is kind of the parallel story to this, not to be sent out into the abyss. So where does Jesus send them? Sends them into the pigs. And what do the pigs do? 
They run off the steep bank and into the sea, and they drown. Very symbolic of Pharaoh's army from the Exodus story. But this causes kind of a ruckus in town. People go and tell others. I mean, that's a big event. And so a lot of people are coming out there to figure out what happened. And I love verse 15 of Mark chapter 5. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they were afraid. So people from the town come out there and they see this guy who usually is the crazy, naked, strong guy, and here he's dressed, and whatever it was that has made him go crazy, he's back in his right mind. You know, remember that was the charge against Jesus from Mark chapter 3 and verse 21. His own family came to get him, and they said he's out of his mind. He's standing outside of himself. So here's this guy who's usually out of his mind, and now he's dressed, and he's in his right mind, so that alone tells a story. But the people are afraid. In verse 17, they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. So here we have a request. Jesus, leave. The man who could heal them, who could save them, they're asking him to leave because they're afraid. And then in verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by the demons begged him that he might be with him. He's been healed, he's been saved, his life is going to be changed forever. Why not keep going with Jesus? Maybe he doesn't feel like he has a home there anymore, so he wants to leave and go with Jesus. But I love the response that Jesus gives to him. I'm going to pop it up on the PowerPoint. But Jesus refused and said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. This was our scripture reading this morning. Instead of letting this guy, this ex-demoniac, come with Jesus, Jesus says, no, you go back to where you've come from and tell your family and friends how much God has done for you, what mercy he has shown to you. We don't use this language very often, but he's basically saying, go share your testimony. You know, in our Church of Christ tribe, our history, testimonies are not something that we're very familiar with, not something we practice very often, but this is what Jesus is telling this guy to go do. Go share your story. When people see you in town and see there's been a change in your life and your physical appearance, go tell people about what God has done for you and how he has shown you mercy. And then in verse 20, he went away, began to proclaim in the Decapolis, which is the ten towns, the ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And look at this, everyone was amazed. So he's sharing his story, and people are feeling God. They're feeling this kingdom of God that Jesus is preaching. Something is happening. Now, as you study through Mark, you might realize that usually Jesus tells people not to tell anyone. He heals a leper, he heals a paralytic, he heals whoever, and he says, don't tell anyone. Go show yourself to the priest, but don't tell anyone. It's known as the messianic secret. But here, for the first time in Mark, he heals someone and he says, go tell. Now, probably the difference is he's in Gentile territory and not Jewish territory. So this guy, because Jesus has to leave, this guy is going to pave the way for Jesus to make his return. He's basically the first evangelist into this Gentile territory. And the way that he is spreading the word, the way he is paving the way for Jesus to come is by telling his story, by telling what God has done for him. Uh, last Sunday morning we had Phil Waldron here with us uh, for Mission Upreach. 
who gave a great sermon, but at the beginning of his sermon, he shared for about five minutes his story. And if you weren't here, you can listen to the recording on our website or our podcast, but you can hear what they have gone through as a family the last several years and some of the doubt and frustrations and struggles and everything that they've gone through. And he still stood up here and said, but he believes now more than ever God is good. So what he did was he shared his story with us and how God has been merciful through that. So what is your story? If Jesus were to tell you, go to your family and friends, go to your home, go wherever you work and share your story, tell people what God has done for you and how he has shown mercy on you, what story would you tell? Have you ever stopped to really think about that? Let's continue on in Mark 5, verse 21. We're going to get two more stories. Uh, this is another Markin sandwich. You know, an inclusio, this is where he starts one, one with one story, goes to something else, and then comes back to that. So, He'll start here, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, so we have the other side again, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, my little daughter is at the point of death, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So we went with him, and a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. So here's this synagogue ruler, I pronounce his name Jairus, that's how, what we're going with for this lesson this morning. Jairus comes and he falls at the feet of Jesus. Now he's a synagogue ruler, so that means he has some sort of authority, probably a small town, small synagogue, but he's still kind of working in cooperation with the religious leaders. And as you've already seen in Mark, the religious leaders, they don't really like Jesus that much. There's a lot of controversies going on, but who cares about religious controversy when your daughter is dying? It's like Jairus said, forget all that. Here's a guy that can help my daughter. You can see the genuine concern of a parent as he just falls at the feet of Jesus and begs him to come and to help. And I'm sure parents, you've probably been there before for your own kids. And when my son uh, was born, you know, been alive for less than two months. Uh, he got really sick. Uh, there was a lot of sicknesses going around. It was early, mid-January around there, and he was running a fever. And then we noticed it seemed like he was, you know, he's just a, a little baby, but he's having trouble breathing. Uh, so we weren't real sure what to do about it. And the next morning, we finally decided, let's take him to the emergency room. And I promise you, parents, you can identify with this. You're pleading for your child, you know, in a situation like that, right? I mean, we took him to the emergency room, and they ended up having to put an IV in his forehead, which apparently is kind of common practice. We didn't know that, so I'm over here like my heart's beating out of my throat. Jessica's crying. Uh, the doctor pulled me aside, and he's like, we need to take him by ambulance to Children's Hospital in Dallas. And, you know, it's just this completely overwhelming thing that's going on. But the whole time, we're praying, right? Parents, you can identify with that. We wound up spending the week in the hospital, and we were released, and he's okay. But that was one of those situations where, even in the heat of it, when you don't know what's going to happen, all you can do really is just turn to God. And he's with you when it happens, after, during, God is always with you through those situations. But we can identify with Jairus here as he runs, and he falls at the feet of Jesus, and he says, please come. But on the, on the way... 
In verse 25, there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had been bleeding for 12 years. And what we're going to learn about Jairus' daughter is that she's 12 years old, so this number 12 is important. It's used twice in Mark chapter 5. She's been dying as long as this little girl's been living. 12 years of suffering. In verse 26, you know, Mark gives us these details of what her life has been like. She endured much under many physicians. She had spent all she had. She was getting no better, but rather grew worse. So some of us can probably identify with this woman. Suffering with something chronic, maybe over a long period of time. Spending all you have, trying to get help, but not really receiving any help or any answers. And 12 years is a long time for that. As I was studying this, and you know, I've had two weeks now to really just be in Mark chapter 5 and read it and kind of sleep on it and think about it. You know it's bad when you're starting to dream about certain things. And so I've spent a lot of time in Mark chapter 5 when I was thinking about this woman and all the people that I've known who have had chronic illnesses can probably identify with her. I thought about when I was in sixth grade, I started having this terrible pain in my upper side right here. I mean, it was like a crippling pain. For a while, I would go to school, I'd get home at 3.30, and I would go to bed. I was in so much pain. So my parents took me to the doctor, and one doctor said I had a pulled muscle. Two weeks later, they x-rayed, they said, well, it's a separated rib. And then a few months later, the pain is getting worse. They can't figure out what it is. We went to the specialist in Dallas, and he dismissed me from the room, and he said to my parents, he has schoolitis. There's nothing wrong with him. He just doesn't want to go to school. Thankfully, my parents believed me because they had been with me in so much pain I was in. And almost six months go by, the pain's getting worse, and we're spending all this money on all these doctors, and we can't figure out what's wrong. Thankfully, we found a doctor who identified the problem, and I had a tumor on my rib. Had surgery. It was not cancerous. We, everything wound up being okay. But I was thinking back, you know, it's kind of like those memories that you block for a while. And as I was studying about this woman, I thought, yeah, that was just a six-month period, but that was a really scary time. You're going to people who you think will have answers, and they don't have answers, and you're only getting worse. And this woman's been doing this for 12 years. She's going to doctors, she's spending all she has, and she's only getting worse. She's a, probably an outcast, she's unclean, she probably can't attend religious services, she can't be out in public, until one day, verse 27, she heard about Jesus. She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I touch his clothes, I will be made well. There's a lot going on there, but for the sake of time, we're just going to acknowledge the fact that she had faith, that Jesus could do something. Immediately, her hemorrhage, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. She was immediately aware that power had gone forth from him. Jesus turned in the crowd and he said, who touched my clothes? So Jesus wants to know, he knows power has left him. You know, in the first eight chapters in Mark, uh, there's a lot of power that Jesus has. And he realizes power has gone out from him, so he wants to know who touched me. His disciples are like, you have this huge crowd here, how can you say who touched me? But Jesus insisted, he looked around in verse 32 to see who had done it. And the woman, verse 33, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. So there's this crowd, there's the disciples, there's this woman, and she comes before Jesus, and she told him the whole truth. 
Now, I'm sure she condensed it some, but essentially she's telling Jesus her story. She told him the whole story. She told him a 12-year-long story of all that she had gone through up until this point when she felt that this disease had left her body. In verse 34, he responds, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So the emphasis is kind of on faith. You know, she has the faith that Jesus could heal her, and because of that, she is healed. But in the meantime, remember, he was on his way to heal this guy's daughter, and they receive word that the daughter's dead. Don't bother Jesus any longer. She's died. But Jesus, in kind of an odd response in verse 36, says, Do not fear, only believe. Now, what does that mean after she's dead? So he takes Peter, James, and John. They go into the house, and there's people there. that There's a lot of commotion. They're weeping and wailing loudly in verse 38. You know, we have hospitals and we have modern medicine, but in that world, death was a regular thing. Grief was a regular visitor to their houses, and because of that, they had well-established rituals where they had professional mourners who would go into houses and basically weep and wail, like it says here in the text. So essentially, there's already a funeral taking place for this girl, and Jesus goes in, he questions their weeping, he says she's only sleeping, kicks everybody out of the room except for the parents, and then in verse 41, he says, Talitha kum, which is Aramaic. You know, the New Testament's written in Greek, but they were, their common language was Aramaic, and so for whatever reason, Mark thinks it's important to keep that original Aramaic here which means the little girl get up. And then maybe his most powerful miracle yet, I guess it would be in verse 42, immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this they were overcome with amazement. So everybody's mourning her death. There's word that she has died. A funeral has started, and now she's back to life. That's power. Jesus has power, he has compassion, he has concern, but then there's something strange that happens in verse 43. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So now he's back to the messianic secret. He says, nobody needs to know about this, which is odd because everybody already knows about this. The town knows about this. Jesus received word that she had died in front of a crowd. There's a crowd at the house crying and weeping, and yet Jesus says, don't tell anyone about this. Which is funny because we know about this, and now 2,000 years later, we're still talking about this. So it seems like, because they're back in Jewish territory, he's back to, let's keep things under wraps for now. Eventually, there will be a time to tell this story. It's almost like he's saying, don't tell anybody about this yet. But there will be a time and place to share that story also. And for some of you, I've asked you, what is your story? You know, sometimes we're not ready to share our story. And there's numerous reasons for that. Sometimes we're not ready to share our story because we don't know our story. Sometimes we're not ready to share our story because we're still right in the middle of sin. Sometimes we're not ready to share our story because we haven't actually dealt with it yet. But there will be a time and a place. And what we see in Mark chapter 5, is in chapter 5 verse 19, he tells the ex-demoniac, go and tell people what God has done for you and how he has shown mercy on you. The woman comes to Jesus and 
tells him the whole truth, tells her story, and then at the end he says, don't tell anyone, and I would say, yet. So here's your challenge. And again, we're not just throwing this out to have a sermon point. We want you to really try to take these challenges and to do something with it. So in light of sharing your story, this is a simple challenge. It's not near as hard as memorizing 20 verses. But to share your story. Write out your story. I put on there your spiritual autobiography or your faith journey. I don't know what your story is. I don't know your life history, and I'm not saying you start from the time you were born until now, until every little detail that's happened in your life. No, tell the story like Jesus asks to tell the story. Go tell what God has done for you and how he has shown mercy on you. So where have you come from? What has happened to you in your life that has affected your faith? Why, if you were baptized into Christ, did you make that decision to follow Jesus? Why are you still following Jesus? How has God worked in your life? How has he shown you mercy? It's a simple but potentially emotional exercise. It may take you an hour or two, and you could just sit down one night and do that. When I was talking with the search committee over a year and a half ago, one of the things they wanted to know about me was my philosophy of ministry and my spiritual autobiography. So one night I sat down, and I tried to keep it condensed, but I told my own story. I thought about growing up. I thought about the decision that drove me to want to be baptized into Christ. I thought about where I've come from since then and how I've seen God work in my life, how God has shown me mercy. And I promise you, it's a powerful exercise. If you haven't ever stopped to think about it, I encourage you to do that. So write out your story. It's a simple challenge, and then share it with one person. We've challenged this church with who's your one to be in a relationship with someone where you're intentionally discipling them, so maybe you share your story with your one. Maybe you write it out and you sit down with your spouse and you say, let me tell you my faith journey. Or maybe you do that with a friend. Write out your story and share it with someone. Uh, Back in March, Dr. Looney was with us doing some evangelism training. And one of the things that he talked about was, I mentioned a few weeks ago, is like the parable of the sower, planting seeds. And then letting God let the seeds grow. And a part of planting seeds, he challenged us to share episodes of our testimony. And he encouraged it to be 60 seconds or less. So you could write out your whole story and then maybe through that find little episodes of your testimony that you can share with other people and work it into conversations as a way of planting seeds, as a way of trying to bring people closer to Christ. So this exercise, this challenge, It's going to involve some self-reflection, but it also involves a little bit of outreach. Let me share an example of two teenagers before we wrap up this morning. A long time ago, I took a youth group to an event called Field of Faith in Texarkana. Loaded up the bus, we took the teenagers, and what this event involved was a lot of video testimonials. So teenagers who had been pre-recorded were sharing their stories. One guy had a pretty powerful story of a car accident that he was in and his best friend had died and all this stuff that he had gone through since then. Another story was about another guy who had lived in a pretty wild party life and um, made some terrible decisions and decided to turn his life over to Christ and he's never been the same. So there's all these video testimonials about that. We got in the bus on the way home and one of our teenagers said to me, I don't have a story like that. 
Like, I just kind of gone to church, and when I was 13, I was baptized, and I don't go to parties, so I don't really have a story to share. And we had a great conversation that night, but I had to explain to him, you do have a story. You have your own story. Your story doesn't have to look like someone else's story. It doesn't have to be super dramatic. All you have to do is just look back in your life and see how God has worked. See where he has shown you mercy, and that's your story. A few years after that, we had another teenager who really wanted to share his story, his testimony with the youth group. He was 19 at the time. Took a Wednesday night, he shared his story, and he had gone through some stuff. But he really embellished a lot of detail. He really made his parents look pretty bad. So after it was over, I had to pull him aside, and I was like, look, some of those things you said were true. Some of those were greatly exaggerated. This telling your story, writing out your story, is not about trying to one-up someone else. It's not about trying to sound super dramatic or more dramatic than the person next to you. Telling your story is about glorifying God. And that's what Jesus commissions this guy to go and do in Mark 5 and verse 19. Go tell what God has done for you and how he has shown you mercy. So this morning... Some of you may not know your story because you've just never taken enough time to stop and reflect on it. Maybe you don't know your story because you've never actually dealt with it. Or maybe you're kind of like Donald Miller and you're like, I want my life to tell a better story. And maybe this will encourage you to live a more intentional life for Christ. I don't know where you're at. But one of the things we want to let you know and be very aware of is that when we sing this song, there is an opportunity for you to respond. We have a baptistry here, and if you ever want to come to Christ and be baptized in Christ, we can arrange that. It can be right now. It can be any time during the week. You can come up front. If you need to grab one of our shepherds, they're going to be around this room. You can pray with them privately or speak with them privately. But we want you to know that during this invitation song, this is an opportunity to you, for you to step out and get some help. So I want to invite you to stand up, and we're going to continue a time of worship. Just as I am.